if I'm not properly being protected, what, what point is it not worth it anymore? I mean, I just had a baby. He's five months old. You know, like, if I can't be protected at work, I mean, I don't want to die from something, you know, and... You're listening to the voice of a healthcare worker who has spent years of training become a healthcare worker to serve and to care for her patients. During her training, she would have never had thought that she would be faced with a situation where there may not be enough personal protective equipment for her to do her best job caring for her patient. Would we send our troops out to war without guns, shield, protective gear? No. Then why would we send our healthcare workers without masks and gloves and proper equipment to fight the coronavirus? I recently spoke with a colleague working at a healthcare center, and three of her nurses quit on the floor because they didn't want to take the chance of getting the coronavirus, especially if they don't have enough masks and gloves to protect them. In this episode, you will hear from a healthcare worker expressing her concerns and feelings about the coronavirus and why we should be concerned for her and for all the other healthcare workers out there. Hello, friends. This is the What is Public Health podcast with your host, Dr. Ki Chan. So how are you doing right now? Right now, I, last week I worked uh, the entire week from uh, Monday until Sunday. And so last week was a really tough week. Right now I'm feeling a little bit more laid back because I've had the last two days off. Uh, I'm still looking, I'm still looking a lot into just trying to wrap my head around everything that's going on right now. It's a very fluid and evolving uh, situation. Uh, the virus is very quickly transmitted and it's about as fast as, as this has started is about as fast as actually changing every day. So right now I'm doing all right. This week I struggled a little bit uh, with just just figuring things out with work and um, family and risks that I may potentially have. That's about it, I guess. Yeah, I think you're in a similar boat with many healthcare workers who need to be there in the front line and in different capacity, even people working as a staff member of the hospital that has to keep the hospital afloat while also managing their own fears and concern, like, am I bringing something back to my family? Um, but I want to be there to help all the families who are effective individuals in the hospital. So it's like a mix. I can imagine there's mixed feelings, especially in your role as a CRN. And I was wondering if you could tell us, tell us more about your role as a CRNA and how your role may have shifted or changed since the coronavirus pandemic. So as a CRNA, I, <clears throat> it stands for a Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist. My uh, undergraduate degree is in anesthesia, or is in um, being a registered nurse. My graduate degree is in anesthesia. So essentially I'm a nurse that does anesthesia. Uh, I work, I can work independently in operating rooms, depending on which state I am located in and have a full scope of practice. So a lot of times people confuse uh, CRNAs with an anesthesiologist and people will say I'm an anesthesiologist, but I'm actually a CRNA, but we have very similar roles in the, in the operating rooms. Uh, we do a lot of the exact same training. So as a CRNA during this corona pandemic, the biggest thing that I am facing is um, because I work in surgery, anesthesiologists and CRNAs and uh, AAs are 
all experts in the airway. And the thing with coronavirus is that people are getting a really bad respiratory distress syndrome and they need to be intubated and they need to be on a ventilator. And my role essentially is every day I put in breathing tubes. I anticipate, I anticipate my role to shift a little bit differently because of this, because we're not doing healthy people surgeries um, anymore, but rather the, we're doing people, we're putting in breathing tubes for people who are quite sick. Additionally to my education, we are, a CRNA has at least one year of ICU experience. I have five years of ICU experience. I worked in um, a pediatric ICU and as, as well as uh, in an adult cardiac surgical ICU. So uh, we kind of hear things going back and forth as to what, what our role will be. Um, some people say, oh, the hospital may want to use us as a nurse, but then there's some, you know, legal and um, ethical dilemmas with that because we have a, um, a graduate and advanced education that is um, completely, is different than nursing. And so going back to a role as a nurse, there's a lot of like legal and liability issues that may arise from having to take care of patients under the direction of somebody else when we are used to taking care of patients and function in a different role. I think it's an evolving situation as far as what, as how my role change. There are certain things that I see already changing and that is with the uh, personal protection during this. So if you can imagine um, putting in a breathing tube, you get very close to somebody's airway. Um, and basically a breathing tube goes into um, into the trachea, so it goes down somebody's windpipe. Putting that in requires some manipulation of the of the throat area with a, it's like a metal device, it's called a laryngoscope, and it can cause coughing, and it can cause the virus because it sits back in your nasal pharynx, which is in the back part of your throat. It can cause um, actual little particles of the virus to um, to be aerosolized and go into the air that are small enough for you to breathe in. So the role of the transmission of the virus, the virus, um, what they're seeing is it's on surfaces and it's also in droplets, like when somebody coughs, but in a procedure like an intubation, you see this virus being aerosolized into the air and you can breathe it in. So a lot of the changes that I'm seeing are how, um, how as a healthcare provider, am I protecting myself? Um, what is our institution standards as protecting ourselves? And um, because it's been a very fluid situation, there's some things that we may have to do differently um, because of um, just because of how contagious this virus is. Just to follow up on putting the um ventilators on people. Can you talk more about at what point does the patient needs that? Because I think there's maybe some misconception that like everybody who's infected needs it. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could help um, demystify those misconceptions and that and how long do they need to be on that? And maybe they're not really that sick to death. Um, maybe it's also just to um, as preventive from them getting worse. So if you could just elaborate more on just that on the procedure? Right, so part of this reason that 
that we're doing social distancing and making sure to keep keep away from other people is to spread the transmission of the virus so that way less people are sick at one time. It's not saying that people aren't going to get sick because people are, um, but it's to have less people sick at one time so that way the hospital system and the care of healthcare workers is not overwhelmed and also um, give time to ramp up some personal protective equipment um, so that way people can be protected. Um, the ventilators, so going on a ventilator does not, does not in itself mean that you are going to die. A ventilator is a life-saving, um, uh, life-saving piece of equipment and it allows, it allows us to physiologically, uh, breathe for, for someone. So, I have been listening to some podcasts and looking at some journals of medicine and things like that. And what I'm seeing is that with coronavirus, instead of somebody going on a ventilator later down the road, uh, because it is so contagious, they're having their different places are doing different policies as to how soon they put patients on ventilators. So so a ventilator, a patient could be on like six liters of oxygen, but they don't want to go up to another type of, of supportive measure that would like help someone to breathe without a breathing tube, because that, like I said, when you put in the breathing tube, it aerosolizes the virus, but also helping somebody to breathe and having someone coughing all over is also spreading the virus. So when a breathing tube goes in, there's a, there's a cuff in the, um, that kind of blows up and it seals off the trachea. So that way, everything that's in the lungs stays in the lungs and everything that's above there is above there. I've heard mixed reports. I've heard reports of people uh, getting very sick. And I, I think the media tends to focus on people getting very sick and dying while they're on the ventilators, but also there are reports of younger people and a lot of younger people actually that, um, that end up on ventilators for a few days and then end up coming off the ventilator. So the ventilator is just kind of a little bit of a bridge while, while you're having the pneumonia that's caused by, um, by coronavirus to make sure that you are still breathing and getting enough oxygen to your blood and making sure that your body is, um, to make sure that your body is functioning as it should be physiologically so your body can heal. So just because somebody goes on a ventilator doesn't mean that they're not going to come off a ventilator. Actually um, with surgery, so my job, my normal job um, with putting in a breathing tube and um, people having surgery, they go on a ventilator during the surgery, not every single surgery, but certain ones, um, you know, I'd say probably the majority of them, people go on to a ventilator for the surgery specifically. And what that allows us to do is to scientifically look at somebody, somebody's vital signs and breathing and volumes that their lungs are taking in and how much pressure lungs have in them and making sure that their body stays at a physiologic baseline. There are definitely going to be cases where people go on a ventilator and don't make it. But I think um, from what I understand is a lot of people go on a ventilator and then come off a ventilator. And that's 
the majority of people, but, but think all these people who have recovered that need a ventilator for a short amount of time, we don't want all those people coming to the hospital. Like I said, with those 15 day isolating for 15 days and whatnot, but if everybody comes to the hospital at the same time and is sick at the same time, how do you allocate the ventilators? Um, I know that, that hospitals are making preparations throughout the hospital to be able to take care of patients in non-typical sites where they could put a ventilator. So my understanding of supplies of hospitals would have to be that, um, you know, like an ICU, I would guess that hospitals have at least one ventilator for each ICU bed and possibly more than that. Um, but it's scary thinking that there might not be enough. Um, there are alternative sources of ventilators um, that are available in, in facilities. For example, an ICU ventilator is not the same as an anesthesia ventilator. So um, what, what some places may end up doing is using anesthesia ventilators so that way they can so that way they can put the patient on a ventilator and still monitor them and make sure that they can get over this hump and then they just don't use any of the anesthesia stuff that goes along with that ventilator usually in addition to an icu there are however many operating rooms are there are there should be an an, an anesthesia ventilator so um, hospitals probably have a little bit more than they had originally thought when they look at mobilizing other means of ventilation, like, uh, like the ones that are in the operating rooms. Yeah, well, that's actually good to know that we could be creative in how we're re-supplying uh, the use of our equipment. So that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and from your experience um, working in the healthcare and being so close to the patients, can you tell me or tell us more about this virus? Um, you know, what we're listening from the news is it's slightly mutating, um, but you know, to what point is it going to be you know, um, deadly? But I'm just curious what, what you can tell us more about this virus. Last week, I heard there were two different, two different uh, mutations of or there was the original and then a mutation of the virus, but now I'm hearing that there's three and that one of them actually affects younger people even more. Um, from what I have read, identified the receptor in the lungs that the virus uh, targets and that's, it's called the angiotensin two, I believe, receptor. Um, and that's part of a very complex system that regulates not only your breathing, but also your, um, your entire physiology of your body. How is this virus like different than our previous one? Because I mean, I mean, we see it now as being a pandemic, but you know, what are some practices that you think that we could do better next time uh, or, we, or we could do now to help um, our patients? How is this one different? Well, this one is different in the sense that the transmission rate is much higher than even the flu. So more people will be affected by this. Um, It's also different in the sense that it can be dormant for up to two weeks prior to being symptomatic. Um, I think that 
because because of it being dormant people don't know that they're spreading it when they could be spreading it and also there can be silent carriers of it so to me it seems like an interesting virus in the sense that it has figured out how to how to infect a host very very critically but it's also learned how to be transmissible if that's a word without without affecting anyone so i've had some definite thoughts about like what is this virus going to do so right now we're treating this pandemic and it's affecting so many people but how is it going to affect people down the road from now the people that have had it is it going to come back yeah i mean it's like it's like almost basic human instinct right like the virus has its own instinct for survival right Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um but yeah, I mean, like there's, there's just still so much more we need to understand about the, the science of this virus because it is so new and we get more information about it. And, and I think that this virus is going to stick around for some time. Even if it's gone, I think the impact it has made on society from a public health perspective, a healthcare perspective, from an economic and political spe- perspective, mm-hmm. there's just still so much um, study that we're going to learn from this experience collectively. <laughs> Right, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, right now, like, and like, you're actually boots on the ground, you're at the hospital, and I'm just really curious, like, how concerned should we be about running out of masks, gloves, and other hospital equipment? Um, Because, you know, we hear it on the news all the time, but in reality, like, how worried should we be? That's a really great question, too. I feel like I have been, um, I didn't think that that it would be able to happen, but then when I've been allocated one mask a day, one N95 mask a day. Um, how often were you, how many times did you have a mask before? Do you change each time you do a surgery or? Oh yeah. I mean, as many times as you want to change, you just get a new mask, you know? Like how many, like seven or 10 a day, or I don't know how many. Probably. I mean, it depends on many different things you do, but I mean, at least, I mean, the Jayco, rules and now jaco is a governing board for hospitals and um but they go around and make sure that everybody's washing their hands and masks you know people aren't contaminating things so one of the rules is you can't have a mask hanging around your neck so every time that that mask comes off of your face it goes in the garbage so i would say yeah at least 10 a day at least Um, now you have to use one Right, and and they're different. So so an N95 mask and a and a mask that's like a surgical mask are different. So the surgical masks block out um, droplets and like moisture, um, whereas an N95 mask is uh, basically like suctioned to your face, um, and it has very, very small holes, and I'm not sure exactly how they work, but it, it um, filters out, like, the reason 95 comes in is it's 95% of particulate matter, and that's from the size of 0.1 to 0.3 microns, and if I'm not mistaken, I think the virus is like 0.3 microns, and so, even an N95 mask isn't causing a, isn't covering all of all of the virus, um, only 95% of it. So 
Um, a surgical mask and an N95 mask are very different. And I'm sure that the N95 masks are much more expensive to produce because they are, um, they have different requirements and you still have to be able to, they're, they're kind of hard to breathe through actually. And what about other um, supplies in the hospital, like gloves, gowns? I feel like ever since this, I have been very, very, very conscious about conserving. Um, no one has mentioned hospitals running out of gloves, but I do wonder if that's going to happen. Um, gloves, I mean, everything is a su supply chain, you know, it's not, it's not like we can just Oof, there's gloves, you know, gloves need to be made. Like even with masks, you know, they're, the government is like freeing up however many masks and producing more. But I was talking to my dad about this and they actually still have to have all the raw materials. So I didn't even think about this. Like the masks have all, the masks need the paper to be produced, which is in a different paper mill, which gets whatever from whatever. And then it has to go to the factory and then they have to put together all of all of the masks. So there's like a lot of different steps in order just to get a mask. It's not like they can just decide to start producing them and have them available tomorrow. I do worry about other things running out for sure. Yeah, I really hope we don't either. And I think most recently a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners are donating money. Um, even celebrities are donating monies donating money to manufacture more masks and gloves and other healthcare supplies. But again, the situation is that if the shops are all closed now and you have everyone home, there's a supply right. chain issue that you mentioned that it's not that that's a magic wand that, all right, here's the money. Give me some masks. Right. right. <laughs> you need to have it all running again. So um, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing to see like right now we're having this uh, supply chain issue and not only are we running out of things is do we have enough things like right now, um, you know, do we have enough testing available? So can you tell us more about the current testing situation and yeah. tests available for us? I know that there were, I think, 19 sites initially that could actually run the test. So um, tests were backlogged for like 12, 15 days. Um, and I know in the last week, um, there have been a bunch of other testing sites that have become available and they've been able to start running uh, more tests, which also, you know, goes through that backlog of tests, which is why the numbers are starting to increase rapidly right now is because because a lot of these tests couldn't be, couldn't be run before. Um, I also know that from these, just from the press conferences that, that uh, the tests are, they're starting to come out with a test at home test uh, that I think those are being allocated to bigger cities right now um, that are in much higher need um, like Seattle and places in California and New York, um, maybe Dallas. I think Dallas is catching up there. There's also a test. So it used to be days to get the test. And I say used to like it was, you know, a year ago, but it was like last week. <laughs> so, um, but it used to be like 
days to get the test results. And um, I know the institution that I work at, um, they were able to run the test results in 45 minutes. So I don't know what has changed as far as what, what institutions are receiving, um, big um, academic institutions in bigger cities are probably more apt to have the test that they can get the results back quicker, but they usually end up getting the patients that are sickest that come from outside places and um, are probably going to initially be handling a lot of these patients. Mm. Well, that's good to hear that there are other test options available soon, but in, especially in big cities that there might be um, home kits for them. And then in many cities there's drive-throughs, but again, those are still setting up. So right now, like if someone's feeling that they have some symptoms and are concerned, like, and there's not enough testing sites where they are, mm -hmm. um, what would you recommend them to do? Stay home. And I mean, the recommendations that I'm seeing is, you know, if you live in a house with three people and you believe that you might have the symptoms, well, you better believe that all those people will too, you know? And so it's not just the single person, but um, everyone in that household that needs to stay, stay at home. So prioritizing the tests for hospitals, I mean, I, I can understand that because the, the, it, it very much is, is dependent, uh, very much so like somebody's care is actually dependent on it. So if somebody has symptoms at home and they aren't able to get a test, then just isolate yourself at home um, while you're symptomatic. And just and to follow on that note about preparation is like, how satisfied are you with the public health emergency response preparedness to the coronavirus pandemic? Like, is there anything else that could be done or improved based on your perspective? You know, I honestly have been watching the press briefings. Um, as hard as it is to do, I think taking the political stance out of things needs to happen. It needs to happen from the media. It needs to happen from, um, from these press conferences. And I'm actually finding that if I look at, um, if I look at these press conferences instead of the media, I'm getting more complete information, if that makes any sense. That has a less so, of a bias. So you feel like it's more neutral or less biased? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. I think part of, the response, part of the response that I'm seeing that I've been incredibly frustrated with is like the response that's to make it a political response. Like this party is doing that and this party is doing this. And um, it's just, it's just saying what, it's just hindering people being educated and informed about the topic. Um, I was watching a, one of the reporters who I particularly like, always liked, interviewed the Surgeon General. And at the end, it seemed more of politicizing about President Trump's tweet that, really it was like trying to fish for figuring i don't know for for something about that was wrong you know rather state the situation 
you know? Um, and it shouldn't have been about that, but it should have been the Surgeon General talking about. And at the end of the, the interview, he was kind of cut off. And I feel like he didn't really get to get his point across. Um, so I find that frustrating. I also think another way to find good information is I've been looking at the BBC uh, instead of the American media. So um, I feel like they're a little bit less biased as well. And Britain's still having the same toilet paper problem the U.S. is. <laughs> so I found that quite interesting. Um, and so I think, yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, this issue right now should not have a political agenda because this is affecting everyone, regardless what party you're associated with or -hmm. that you trust or you're against because we're all in this together. And in order for us to thrive through this is that we need to put that agenda at the door and that, and, and know that we are all spiritual beings um, going through this together and try to put the political discussion aside for now. But yeah, I totally agree that maybe looking at what is presented to you um, with an unbiased lens. One more thing about the response that has been very difficult for people to wrap their head around is for months, the media has been talking about coronavirus in Wuhan, and then it went to Italy, and then they kind of downplayed it, like coronaviruses cause colds, and, you know, most people aren't affected by it, and and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden it just explodes in the U.S. and people have been hearing for months how it's not that big of a deal. And so I'm finding that that also is a hindrance to, to the response from the general public. Um, and, and that's another reason I think, yeah, like I wish that the response was less um, about a political and not everything's about a political agenda, but I wish that could be removed so that way people could get, you know, the education that they need about what is actually going on. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and hopefully people can uh, also agree with that point is that we're in, it to, we're in this together and that right. it's not about which party is right, which party is wrong, or which country started it or didn't. Um, right. And just like dig, dig, we want to remove the stigma that's associated with the virus. Um, that it's not a Chinese virus or a China virus, or I mean, it originated from any other place that like people will probably label that virus with that in this disease. So it's so important to think about that this virus is affecting everybody. Right. So, yeah. And just, and then, you know, just based on your, you know, based on, you know, you have mentioned that, you know, you've been working um, longer shifts and dealing with this issue. Um, which is very different than what you've been used to, right? Working at the surgery operation room now, there might be a possibility that you would have to shift roles, um, getting retrained. And so I can imagine your professional life has changed. So how has your personal life changed? Like your personal life since all of this has happened? Mm -hmm. So I'd say in the the last week has been a very, very difficult and trying week. at what point, at what point is my education and my role that I'm in not worth it anymore? Um, I actually, 
you know, if, if I'm not properly being protected, what, what point is it not worth it anymore? I mean, I just had a baby, he's five months old, you know, like if I can't be protected at work, I mean, I don't want to die from something, you know, and you know, from other people's perspectives, um, they think that all this is kind of a reset too. Like, um, you know, you see people out and about and smiling and just, you know, enjoying their day. And, you know, it's kind of been a really big slowdown from the hustle and bustle of life that everybody couldn't figure out why they're always rushing around everywhere. Um, at least me. So some big ways that it's affected my personal life is, uh, we have, um, a nanny that comes and watches uh, my son three days a week and then my mom does on two days a week and because of my risk of exposure um, I had to tell the nanny that she can't come because she's in her 70s and I don't want to be a reason for somebody who's elderly to get sick um, and when I told her it was really a I could tell it really scared her about you know everything that's going on because she was like oh I think it kind of hit home like all this stuff is actually real you know um and then my mom is also immunosuppressed so she uh, has rheumatoid arthritis and she's on um, immunosuppressant medication so the risk of me contracting this virus is very um is high because healthcare workers are at one of the highest risk points and especially anesthesia professionals, ICU nurses, intensivists, pulmonologists, and people who work in GI procedures. Specifically, these groups are much higher than other places in the hospital. That's kind of turned my life around. My husband's working from home, but he can't really work and watch our son at the same time. So um, so we've had to make some other arrangements and there were some girls in the neighborhood that are off of school that are teenagers that were kind of paying to babysit while my husband can work. So I think the hard part though is like not seeing family, you know, um, trying to number one, get my family to understand the gravity of the situation and the, um, what's going on. And then two, not being able to see them or even um, leading by example, you know, um, and making sure that they understand, you know, like this is a big deal. So those I say, I'd say were pretty, pretty big ways that has changed. Um, I'm hoping that, hoping that once we get everything figured out with this personal protective equipment and with testing and being able to test more healthcare workers that I can get, you know, our nanny back and my mom back babysitting. But until that point comes, I really can't. And because I don't want them to get sick. And those are real changes. Like you said that not only professionally, but how your work put you at higher risk. And so you have to make really big changes in your own personal life. Right. And and what you're feeling is understandable, like just not knowing what's going to happen. And, and, and the fact that, you know, you know, you could be, 
you, you could be asymptomatic, right? And you just don't know. And so like you said, it's just keeping people who are vulnerable away from you and it must be hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also sounds to me that in your voice that there might be some hope, like you sound like yeah. hopeful. And yeah. so if you could share like, you know, what is it that keeps you hopeful? Um, I think what keeps me hopeful is that like, I know that there are so many bright minds that are working on this. Um, I think, I think, um, you know, as far as finding, I mean, I don't know how things are going with the vaccine. Um, but one person that I talked to said that they heard it was not very favorable, but I think, I think with the research and the amount of bright minds that there are, um, in, you know, not only the US, but around the world, you know, I'm hopeful that they come together and, you know, somebody really evaluates and is able to find something, either whether it's treatment, you know, I think another thing that makes me hopeful is that all these, all these people have come together around the world, basically, to try and figure something out. I mean, that that's that's a pretty um, pretty big thing that hasn't happened for a f- probably a very long time, if ever. Um, I don't even know with the flu pandemic in 1918 if that's happened, you know? So, um, and I think also kind of just watching some of the news conferences, getting some unbiased news is helpful in the sense that, okay, Okay, buddy. Okay, buddy. It's helpful in the sense that, you know, I can kind of see the progression of things moving. Um, I also think it's helpful that for me personally, I'm not in one of those really high, um, I'm not in one of those really high, um, highly um, infected areas. So, but but it's going to get like that. And I think um, we just have to work together and learn from what's been going on everywhere else. Hey, buddy. So yes, it does sound that um, because of the coronavirus pandemic it has brought together nations um, that may not have an opportunity to collaborate, uh, to explore, you know, um, to working together, um, putting our differences aside and addressing that the health of our people is most important. So I think, like you said, like there's a reset at a political level. And then there's also a reset at a community level that now we as as a society have to think more like how can we help our neighbors think locally? And then also at a personal level is like reset, re- you know, having a reset in our personal life is now taking time, you know, to take that walk, to enjoy the time of your family, because now you're kind of stuck with them inside. And then also exploring like different creative ways to spend time with people um, once you're closed in. And then also um, that even though we have to participate in social distancing, 
um, it is not, it is, it's, it's really about participating in physical distancing, right. but you can also connect emotionally um, through social channels, even as simple as picking up a phone and calling someone, which is like resetting just our personal perspective of life. So yeah, so many different things to think about, like, you know, while there's so much fear and concern that's being brought in the media and the news, um, but we can also you know, take a step back and explore like what is most important. So, you know, as we're coming in close to our interview, like, do you have any tips and advice for working through this new normal that we just described right here for healthcare providers and health workers just like you? I think, um, I would hope, I would hope that we can all come together and help each other out and, you know, truly care about the people that are around you and that, you know, no matter what they are doing, no matter if they're a physician, no matter if they're taking out the trash, it doesn't matter because everybody is important. Um, I just, I hope that, I don't know, I hope that, that, you know, humanity just comes together um, and I mean, that's really it. Those are the only tips that I can think of. I just like another thing that I've also said for myself is that, you know, if there becomes a shortage where I am of personal protective equipment and whatnot, I kind of have made my one line of what I plan to say will not knowingly put myself or my family at risk. And those are, you know, I, I just think that, you know, you also have to stand up for yourself because I think that, you know, saying, oh, these healthcare workers are putting themselves at risk to save other people. You know, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, really, because I don't know if these healthcare workers want to put themselves at risk to save other people, you know, like, I know, like, there's a very selfless job with healthcare. And it's a very, you know, they enjoy caring for other people. But I also think that there's a certain amount of professionalism and protection that you should have as a healthcare worker, and not be expected to put yourself in dangerous situations. Uh, I hope that humanity can come together and we can also do what's right. And um, that, you know, we keep people from getting sick. Thank you so much for that. And I agree that it's really about uh, coming together and seeing through that it's not you against me or uh, people having to make sacrifices um, in order for someone else to live that, you know, could we do better? And right. that, you know, there shouldn't be a lack of supplies to protect our health workers because they're there to care for our patients. And so I think right now, since we have entrepreneurs and businesses supporting the donation of these masks and gloves and their health care equipment is great, but at the same time, it's like, can we make those quick enough for you guys to use? Right. And so for people who have been stocking up on all these materials is to maybe help donate or share those supplies to the healthcare workers. Right. So, yeah. I really appreciate you sharing your message with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you're doing. If you got questions about any of the episodes, feel free to reach out to me directly. 
And while you're there at it, please subscribe to the podcast and share the episode that you felt connected with so we could be a part of this collective invisible force called public health. Thanks.